Well, open your Bible to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to pick up in verse 1 through verse 11 this morning as last week we talked about uh, the very end of chapter 20, and uh, we are just a week away from Easter or Resurrection Sunday, and it would do us good to really understand, remember what leads up to that point, And, and today is Palm Sunday, of course. And uh, what we're going to see is Matthew's account of Palm Sunday. And last week we looked at the end of chapter 20 as Jesus had uh, just explained to his disciples, had explained to a crowd, had even shown to blind men what greatness is, what is the definition of greatness. And, And greatness is defined, as we saw last week, by Jesus being one of humility, one of self denial which is going to come in important whenever you want to get in line at lunch, okay? So, <clears throat> what we have from Jesus' life is that it is a perfect picture of humility. It's a perfect picture of self-denial, of laying down oneself. The passage that we're going to look at today, examine today, and the Old Testament passage that we're going to refer back to out of the book of Zechariah, if you want to go ahead and try to find that, um, it is going to expand upon the greatness of Jesus, of how great He really is. And just as the songs which we've, we've sang this morning together about the greatness of God, the greatness of Jesus Christ, uh, this is what this passage, these passages will highlight this morning from Matthew chapter 21 and also out of the book of Zechariah. So here in chapter 21, we see that the King has arrived and the fact that everybody needs to know who this King is. And so what we're going to look at this morning in these first 11 verses of chapter 21 is... Uh, what we're going to find are 10 descriptors or characteristics of the king who is to come. Look at verse 1 of Matthew 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks, put on on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee. So here we discover in, the, in verses 2 and 3, the, the first characteristic that's described to us about who this king is. In the kingship of Jesus, in the greatness of who Jesus is, he is the divine king. Divine king. These first verses here, 2 and 3, are just really a multitude, one of multitude verses that we find in the Gospels that describe Jesus' divinity, that point to the fact that He is divine in nature. He is God in nature. 
And as we saw last week from the end of chapter 20, Jesus healing these two blind men and really just how impossible that is as we, as we think about the impossibility of the human eye being transplanted even today versus then when there, there was not even the, the thought of this. It had to be a supernatural power that was at work, that was at play. And this is what Jesus shows in his healing power. And again, just one of the many occasions that Jesus performs a miracle showing the power in which he has, and it's truly a supernatural, divine power. Here again, we are introduced with an improbability, an improbability of something taking place. Jesus, he tells his disciples to go find a donkey and her colt. Okay, those two things together are really important of this story. He, he then tells them, if anyone asks you what you're doing to respond with, the Lord needs them. That, that's a pretty simple answer, isn't it? It's strange what happens in this story. Well, whenever Jesus used this term, Lord, in Scripture, in the New Testament, it, it can mean different things, this terminology of Lord. A lot of times it has a sense of a master or a teacher whenever the Lord is used. But here there's something different that's taking place. When Jesus says, respond to them with, the Lord needs them. When they're challenged with taking this animal... They're not just simply going to say the master needs it or the teacher needs it, but they are actually saying that what Jesus tells them to say is that the Lord needs it. The Lord of all needs it. They will be saying in their response, Yahweh needs these animals. Now this is a statement of Jesus being Lord of all. And again, maybe on the surface, they didn't quite understand, they didn't quite comprehend, but this is, this is the context of that. This is the meaning of that. The, the, the thrust of this is that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus' prediction of this is, is not some great estimation, some great guess that he makes about, well, I think there will be a donkey, I think there will be a cult, I think this guy will let them go. This is not that at all. This is a display of divine providential foreknowledge. Not only does Jesus know that there will be a donkey and a colt available, but he also knows what? The attitude of the owner. He knows that the attitude of the owner will be one of giving, of letting go, of providing. How does Jesus know these things? Well, he is the Lord, obviously. And also the next verses speak to this, this same reality. And it reveals to us that Jesus is the prophesied king. The second point. He is the prophesied king. Look at verses 4 and 5. And this is a quote from the Old Testament. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Save to the daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. He's the prophesied king. This event of the donkey and colt is precisely what the scriptures have predicted, what they have described. Now, you will notice as you read through the gospel accounts that this phrasing happens again and again. And if you haven't noticed this, you probably haven't read enough of the gospels. But you see this again and again, that this took place to fulfill what was spoken. You see that phrase again and again through the scriptures. Everything that Jesus did in his time on earth, it was for a purpose, a purpose, a divine purpose, a purpose to honor the Father above all things. And how does he do this? He does this by fulfilling the prophecies of the Word of God. The, the very improbable prophecies of the Word of God. This prophecy that is referred 
to here, it comes from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9 is where verse 5 is quoting from. The prophet Zechariah, he lived about 500 years, think about that, 500 years before Jesus. So God promised through Zechariah that a donkey and her colt would be available the week before Passover, 500 years before Jesus. This is interesting, isn't it? On the week before, Jesus would enter into Jerusalem. He would ride in on this colt. How is this possible? How, how is that possible? That 500 years before, this would be the prediction and this would be the, the, the fulfillment of this. How is it possible that the finest details of time and of donkey breeding comes out to be exactly this? Who can do this? Who can create such a story or write such a story and then make that story come to pass? I would offer only one explanation. That is the God of all things, the Lord Almighty. It is only Him that can do such a thing. Jesus, He would come into Jerusalem exactly the way the prophet predicted the Messiah would do. Now, now think of all that can happen in 500 years. Our country is not even 250 years old. 500 years. Think of all the things that could happen that could go wrong. All the terrible things that could take place. It's amazing to think that God would say something to the effect of, I will put a donkey along with her colt on this, on this hillside in this village so that the, the Messiah will ride into Jerusalem at exactly the right time the week before Passover so that my word would be fulfilled and even further prove that Jesus is the Messiah. 500 years. I would challenge you to spend some time thinking about that this week. This week, as we prepare for Easter, we prepare for the resurrection of Christ. We, we think about that. We reflect back upon that. Think about how complex, how complicated this would be to accomplish this seemingly simple thing of this prediction with all these potentials of going wrong, of cities even being wiped out. And you see this throughout history, right? Of, of cities that existed and no longer exist. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. We see whole nations being completely wiped out. We see, we, as we've studied through Isaiah, we've seen promises of God that this nation will be wiped out. This nation will no longer exist. And, and it happens a much shorter of a time frame than 500 years. How is this going to happen? How is this even possible? Well, it's not possible unless God is truly sovereign over every single thing and every single event in history. This is who He is. Jesus is the prophesied King. And now I would like to take you back to this prophet that, that mentions here, Zechariah chapter 9. Turn back there in your Bible. It would be on page 748 of that hardback Bible if you're using that. And we're going to find eight other descriptors out of here of who this king is, of what his character is. Look at verse 9 of Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The third thing we see from Zechariah's prophecy, we see this also from 21.5 in Matthew, is that he is the righteous king. The righteous king. 
Now, this is in stark contrast to the other kings of Israel. And as we, again, have been thinking through and reading through Isaiah and the study of Isaiah, these kings that we have seen, and whether it be of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, that they have not lived up to the righteous king. From the very first king of Israel, Saul, to the very last legitimate king of Judah, being Zedekiah, who was then killed by, at the hands of the Babylonians, all of these kings, all of these kings that existed, they were not purely righteous. Even great King David, in, in all of his greatness and all of his popularity, he was deeply flawed, and he was not allowed to build the temple of God because of one of those flaws that he had. The next king that will come, as the prophet pronounces, as the prophet predicts, this next king that will come, he will be a righteous king and perfectly righteous. What is righteousness? You know, we use, we use these Christian words all the time, we use these Bible words all the time, but do we really understand what they mean? Do we feel the weight of what they mean? To be righteous is to be seen as right before God or in the sight of God, to be right with Him. Or another way to think about this is being completely obedient to God, to what God demands, so that there's no fault in you. There's no failure in you. There's no flaw in you. You're perfect with Him. Now, who has done this? There's only one who has done this, and we know this to be Jesus. He is perfectly and completely righteous. He lived His life in perfect obedience to the Father, to what the Father wanted, and He is the righteous King. Often, Today, there, there's a lot of emphasis put upon being a spiritual person, and, and you hear this, whether this is non-Christian or Christian, we, we talk in terms of being spiritual. There's a lot of emphasis put upon feelings or upon emotions, and this is how a lot of people gauge their spiritual health, uh, of where they are with God, of how they feel, of what emotions that they have. Other gauges that people use are things such as distinctions from others by maybe the way that they dress or the food that they eat or don't eat, the physical activities that they do or don't do, music that they listen to or don't listen to, or other things that they believe that make them more spiritual than other people. This kind of spirituality can be a real cheap substitute for real righteousness and godliness. People... They love to have experiences. They, they love to feel connected in some way. But people do not love to do the works of righteousness. They just don't. You don't. I don't. And what do I mean by works of righteousness? It's doing all that God says is right. That's what righteousness is. And this moves beyond just church attendance or Bible studies or, or prayer which, which are all important and essential to the growth of a Christian. These are all right things, good things, healthy things, essential things. But it moves into doing the hard things that the Lord has commanded you to do. What are the hard things that He's commanded? Well, it's things like reconciling relationships, forgiving others, denying self, relying upon His timing, not yours. It's serving and loving others like Jesus did, like Matthew chapter 20, what we see, the inconvenience that Jesus has, the, the care that He gives. This is what we've been commanded to do. And being a righteous person means that you will be a spiritual person, 
They do go together, but just because you're a spiritual person doesn't automatically make you a righteous person. So just because you feel spiritual or have some sort of emotion attached to your spirituality doesn't necessarily make you right before God. The righteous will live by faith, as Romans 1 says, as Paul writes, the righteous do all that Jesus commanded. This is what Jesus left his disciples to do. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will do my commands. You will follow my commands. Jesus was and is perfectly righteous. He is the righteous king. And following all that the Father had asked him to do, even to the point of death and death on a cross, and because he is the righteous king, he also becomes the Savior King, our Savior King. Look at verse 9 again, as it mentions, and having salvation is He. As Zechariah predicts that this King is one who is bringing salvation, now back into Matthew's account, as, as we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem, we hear the crowd crying out, what? Hosanna, and they keep repeating this, right? To the, to the Son of David. So Son of David, again, we talked about last week, that idea of the Messiah is the title given to this, the Messiah specifically. So Hosanna is what they're crying out, to the Messiah. So what does Hosanna mean? It literally translates to mean, save now. Save now. So essentially what they're saying is, Messiah, save us now. Messiah, save us now. They're crying out for salvation but salvation from what? What do they want salvation from? Well, to understand their thoughts, we have to remember their history. We have to remember what's happening in this moment. This city of Jerusalem, it has swollen to three to five times its size in this week because of Passover, which is the celebration that all these have come. Jesus is coming to. His disciples are coming to. They are remembering the time that God delivered and freed his people from the Egyptian rule and from the slavery that they were under and by, by way of being preserved by what? The blood of a lamb. This is what the Passover is. This is what Passover means. They were passed over. They were preserved because of the blood of the lamb. So the application of the blood of the lamb preserves everyone who is in the house. So the crowd, they are crying out for salvation just like the, the forefathers that they had, they were crying out for salvation from God, from the oppression of slavery and the oppression of the Egyptians. They were wanting to be saved from the physical oppression and the occupying Roman government. This is what they wanted salvation from. Messiah, save us from them. Is this the salvation that they should have been crying out for? Is this the salvation that Jesus came for? No. No, of course not. They didn't need saved from a government or bad kings or even a corrupt religious system. They needed saved from their own prideful, sinful hearts. That's what they needed salvation from. This was their condition, and Jesus is coming for that condition. Jesus is the Savior that they needed, but he is not the one they wanted. 
They had something else in mind. They had something else that was in their heart and their mind in what they thought action would be. They wanted physical deliverance or physical freedoms. And this focus made them miss the great spiritual need that they had to be saved from their sins. The suffering they were enduring from the Romans, it paled in comparison to the eternal suffering that was hovering over them as a people, as individuals. And this is true for us today, isn't it? Our physical state is the least of our worries, even though our worries are mostly consumed with physical things. This is true for us. We need to be far more concerned about our spiritual state and standing with God. We, we need to think about our right standing before Him, our righteousness before Him. And Jesus is the Savior that we need. He should be also the one that you want. Not just the one that you need, but the one that you actually want, you desire, you, you have passion for. How will He save His people? Well, He'll do it by being a humble king. Number five, a humble king. We also see this out of verse 9 as it talks about his humility. And again, going back to Matthew chapter 20, that idea of humility is at play. Who will this king be? He will be the humble king. And unlike so many other leaders who are filled with pride and with arrogance, Jesus has come humbly. This is how he came into the world. He, he was born to a carpenter's family who laid him in a manger he was raised in the city of Nazareth, which we find out later in the Gospels that it doesn't have a great reputation. He surrounds himself with a group of disciples who are not likely the best and the brightest of Galilee. His humility is seen throughout his ministry. And now, now in this moment, it's being displayed publicly and prophetically. It's being displayed as he comes riding in on a donkey's colt. <laughs> This is not a war horse that Jesus is on, right? It's upon the colt of a donkey, to which no one has ever ridden, by the way. This is a meek and humble animal to ride upon. And this is what's being described and displayed as Jesus rides in on this donkey's colt, that he is humble. Now, as we saw from chapter 20 of Matthew, humility is the path to greatness. It is the essential component of the entrance into the kingdom of God, you must be humble. Humility is shown through self-denial, putting others' needs ahead of your own and even ahead of your wants. Jesus has done this and is still doing this even in this moment as He is progressing toward the cross. He is humble. He is the humble King of Zechariah 9. And in the next verse that we see in chapter, chapter 9 here of Zechariah, verse 10, we see that Jesus is also the peaceful King. So He's humble and peaceful. Look at verse 10. I will cut off, from the, cut, uh, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This colt that Jesus is riding in on, it had never been ridden before. Now, now think about that. If a horse or a donkey has not been broke, it usually doesn't go well for the one trying to ride it. Now remember, 
also this fact that the large crowd had gathered around Jesus. They're, they're crying out, probably a lot like those two blind men of chapter 20, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're, they're throwing coats out in front of this colt. They're also cutting down palm branches, throwing it in front of this animal. How is this young donkey going to respond to that kind of chaos? Well, it should be unrightable. It should, it should be unruly, right? Like, like This is just the nature of the animal, the nature of the beast. But Jesus, who sits upon it, brings peace even to the most unruly and unrightable, the most unlikely to submit. He is the king of peace. The colt, it moves forward because the prince of peace sits upon it. It keeps step after step moving forward, not distracted, not unrightable. Maybe you know people who are like this. Maybe you are one of these people. That you are one of the most unlikely to repent, to submit to the Lord, to the authority of, of the Prince of Peace. Or maybe these that you know, they are unruly, they are unsettled in life. But, but here's a great example of what Jesus can do. He can bring peace to anyone or anything. Let me ask you, how have you been praying about those people in your life that are like that? How have you prayed for them? Have you been praying that Jesus would bring them peace? That He would bring them into submission under His gentle grace and guidance? Have you spoken to these people about Jesus being the peaceful King? So, so moving moving further to what you should be doing of just praying for them? Have you moved into conversation with them about who Jesus is? Jesus riding upon a donkey into Jerusalem, it has symbolic significance to it. Not only showing that He is humble, that He, he is the, the reflection of humility, but also it shows His intentions. His intention of peace. Now when a king would ride into a city on a donkey, it was, it was a symbolic picture of peacetime. But when a king would ride into a city on a horse, it would, it would symbolize that it was a time of war, or they're going to war, or coming back from war. Jesus has come to make peace and to bring peace. But the question again is with who? Who's this peace with? Who is it that Jesus is making peace with? Is he coming to make peace with the Roman government or, or the temple authorities? No. No, actually what happens in Matthew is right after he gets into Jerusalem, what does he do? He creates all kinds of chaos in the temple, flipping over tables and driving people out. The peace that he brings goes beyond these authorities to the highest authority. There's a desperate need for peace to be made between God and humanity, which goes all the way back, takes us all the way back to Genesis 3, right? The fall of man. Since that moment, humanity has been under the curse of sin and the slavery of sin, which has made man, all men, enemies of God. How can there be an end of this war? This war against the, the Almighty God without there being complete destruction of all of those who would be opposed to Him. That's where Jesus' perfections come in to make peace. 
Jesus being truly man and truly God, bring about peace between the two parties that have been in perpetual conflict since Genesis 3. Jesus' perfect life in in every thought and word and deed is what is required of God to be righteous before Him and right standing before Him. It is required for there to be peace with God. So because Jesus is completely righteous according to the laws of God and, and the fact that He is also the eternal Son of God means that He is able to make eternal peace between God and man. If He was not God, or if He was not man, truly, fully, then those things could not be true. Humanity can be reconciled to God by way of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and through the grave. This is how man is reconciled, brought back in right relationship with God. Jesus did not come to bring political peace, but eternal peace. His mission was not limited to the Jewish people. Notice also here in Zechariah 9.10, that is for the nations. He shall speak peace to the nations. Which leads us to the next truth about this King Jesus, as He is the global King. He is the global King. This verse, it speaks about the Messiah ruling from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. So what nation, what king, what prime minister, what leader is not under the rule of King Jesus? I mean, think of one. Is is there one? There's not. Now, do all those leaders do what is right or what they ought to do? Of course not. No, they do not. But they will give an account to the King of Kings one day of how they have led, of what they have done, decisions which they made. Our president will give an account for how he led this nation. The president of Russia will give an account for the decisions that he's made. They will give an account to Jesus. Now this should bring us a great comfort knowing knowing that there will not be a single person who will not stand before the King of Kings and give an account for how they have how they have handled themselves, and how they have handled their responsibilities, including those in government. This should bring us a great comfort knowing that there will be no evil that will go unpunished. He is truly a sovereign king over all. King Jesus is for every nation. He's for every tribe, every language. This is what Revelation 7-9 tells us. And also what Zechariah predicts, his peace and his salvation have come for the whole of humanity. It's not isolated. This is really interesting about Zechariah making this prediction. It's not isolated to ethnic groups, such as Israel alone. This is good news for the world, good news for you, good news for me. It's not simply for those of the first century or for the region of Israel. It is for the world. It is for humanity. Jesus is the Redeemer that all people need. And this brings us to number 8, and that He is the Redeemer King. Look at verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of My covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now this verse it speaks about the blood covenant that God has made 
God has made, not man has made or Israel has made, but God has done it. It's important about Jesus, right? That he, he willingly laid down his life. As he said, nobody takes it from me, but I lay it down. So God lays down his life. Jesus lays down his life. It is his blood, his covenant that was made. And as a result of this, there will be freedom. Freedom. Last week we heard Jesus speak about being the ransom that must be paid. Remember that out of chapter 20 of Matthew? He's the ransom. This ransom is not being paid to the devil, by the way. You might need to write that down because you're confused. The ransom that Jesus is paying is not to the devil because it's not the devil's laws that have been broken. The devil is not in authority. God. God is also not beholding to anyone. So it is not as if Jesus is beholding to the devil and he has to make a payment to the devil. God owes no one anything, right? So God is not beholding to the devil. This is not the ransom that's being paid. This ransom that is being paid is to satisfy the requirements of breaking God's law and being a traitor against God. And with this ransom payment, Jesus redeems those who will repent of their treason and trust in Jesus' ransom payment. You trust in Him, you will be redeemed. You give yourself to Him, you will be redeemed. He is that ransom that we need. Jesus is the Redeemer King that we need. And with this redemption also comes a restoration. And we see Him to be the restoring King. Look at verse 12 of Zechariah 9. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Double. Now the crowd, they were hopeful that there would be a restoration that would happen, that the Messiah would bring restoration of all that the Romans had stolen from them or taken from them or or manipulated them out of. They were excited to have a king who would give them what they felt they had lost or what they felt had, had been taken from them. Whether that was the land or their money or their rights, they later become greatly disappointed in Jesus, don't they? Because he, he doesn't offer that kind of restoration to them. They, they cry out in just a few days that he should be crucified, j- just as a common criminal would be. Why? Because he didn't meet their expectations. Their expectation of him was, was now, restore us now, what we have lost, what we, what we need. We need our land, we need our money, we need our rights. He didn't meet those expectations. And their misunderstanding of Jesus led to their disappointment about him. And maybe this is true for you, that you have an expectation of him that is not being met because it's the wrong expectation. The promise that the Messiah will bring restoration is, is first of all, a spiritual restoration with God. There will be a restoration, and it will be with God through the ransom Jesus Christ, the Redeemer Jesus, the restoring Jesus. The crowd does not see Jesus this way, but, but only has a physical restorer in mind as they think about what Israel needs, what they need. Another restoration that will happen is a physical one. There is also a promise that goes along with Jesus being a restoring king to a physical element. And this one will be done in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus says this in in Matthew 19. We, We read this already this morning. Verse 29, And everyone 
who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus promises that there will be a great reward. A great reward that is, is awaiting you. It is, it is coming for you. Are you willing to pursue the kingdom first? Are you willing to pursue the kingdom first and foremost? And if you do, if you are, then you will lose things. But you will not consider those things to be lost. Why? Because you, you know, you know the end of the story. Anything that you let go of in this life for the sake of the kingdom, it will be rewarded a hundred times over. Now, you won't find a better guaranteed rate of return. And if you hear somebody give you that rate and guarantee you that, they're a shyster, right? They're going to rip you off. They're going to take your money and run. Jesus is not like that. He promises something to you. He is a restorer. When the king restores what has been lost or given, he does not meet the minimum requirement like your insurance company would, right? Oh, my house got taken out by a tornado. Yeah, well, I think you should get this much. This is not what Jesus promises here, is it? He is exceeding expectations. Why? Because he is so wealthy. Because he has way more to give than what you could even ask for. This is the restoration that he's promising here. In Matthew 19, he's promising to restore more than you could ever even imagine being restored to you. Whether that be about, about relationships or properties or freedoms, he promises far more because he has so much more to give. The, the, the tenth and final description that I think we have here out of Zechariah 9 about who this king is, is in verse 13, that he is the warrior king. Look at 13. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. This king, that is a peaceful king, that is a humble king, he will also be one who makes war against all those who hate him, and who hate his people. There will be a time when he no longer rides a donkey, but will ride a war horse into battle. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, gives us this prediction, tells us this truth. It says this in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are, and on his head are uh, many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth come a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Jesus, who is the King, He will strike down any and all who oppose Him. He will make war on all who believe that they can resist Him, that they can fight against Him, and all those who think that they don't have to submit to Him. This will be a terrible day. A terrible day for many who thought that He was weak. He was worthless. He didn't meet their expectation. It would be a terrible day for those who believe that they can make peace with God on their terms, not His. According to their authority, not His. Those that maybe believe that they could redeem themselves through good works or good efforts. There's only one way to avoid this kind of warrior king. There's only one way, and that is to trust in Him. To trust what He has done, what this king has done, which is to lay down His life in humble obedience to the Father in every, every aspect of His life. How do you avoid the warrior king? Submit. Submit to this king. Give your life to this king. Enjoy the rewards of this king. These ten descriptions show us who Jesus is. But let me take you back to the book of Matthew. Hopefully you didn't lose your place there. Back to chapter 21. Look at verse 10. It says, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Who is this? People might ask you the same question. Who is this? Maybe you have friends or or family members that as you invite them and, and share the gospel with them, they ask you, well, who is this? Maybe, maybe not in just those simple three words, but what will your answer be? Who is this? Why should I care who this is? What, you, what will you give them as a proof as to who this is? One of my desires this morning is to give you a deeper understanding, deeper than what the crowd has in this moment. Because look at verse 11. And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They called him a prophet, just like John the Baptist, just like Zechariah. In their minds, he wasn't much more than that. Now, they had expectations that were greater than those two. They thought him to be the Messiah. Of course, I mean, they they call him the son of David, right? So they believed him to be the Messiah, but their their expectation of what the Messiah would do was wrong. Jesus is not like any other figure in all of human history and should not be compared to any of them. He is divine. He's prophesied, righteous, the Savior, Humble, peaceful, global, redeemer, restoring, and a warrior king. This is who he is. Do you believe it? Do you believe that? Those ten things? Do you believe that to be true of him? Now, are you living like you believe that? Because you always are. You're always living like your deepest beliefs. Have you realized that? You might say something, but to real belief and real action, those might be different things. You're always living what you really deeply believe. Saying and doing are not always the same thing. 
but they should be for the Christian, right? They should be for us. Because we say, this is who Jesus is. He's these ten things. Now, do I believe it? Do I act upon it? And this is what I call you to do this morning, to act upon these ten characteristics. Let me leave you with two questions to to reflect upon this morning. As we think about Jesus, as we think about this week and leading up to the resurrection, how should these ten characteristics of Jesus change the way you live? You specifically. Put yourself in there. Of these ten things that are listed here from Matthew and Zechariah, how should that change me? Why am I not different because of these ten things? And then a second question is, is more of a corporate idea here. How should our church look different because of these truths about Jesus? Us, collectively. How should we be different because of these ten things? What is an area that maybe we're just missing, we are lacking? What I would challenge you to do is to pray about that specifically, but then let's take action toward toward a a right declaration of what we say and what we do, that we, we actually put this into function and in practice. Who is this king? He is the king of glory. He is the king almighty. There is none like him. Do you believe it? Let's act upon it. Would you spend just a few moments in reflection and prayer? We'll sing one final song and be dismissed.